0: I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 31st of March. Today, Blair's back. The former Prime Minister joins the general election campaign, praising Gordon Brown and attacking the Conservatives. But can Blair give Brown the bounce he needs? I want a future fair for all. And I believe
1: a fourth-term Labour government, and only a fourth-term Labour government, can deliver it. Also
2: in today's podcast... We're seeing kind of more xenophobia and intolerance here with reports of several Caucasians who've got nothing to do with what happened on Monday being beaten up and uh, actually physically kicked off metro trains.
0: In Russia, investigators have warned of further attacks as the death toll from the terror strikes on the Moscow metro rises. Plus, particle physics and the beginning of a new era of exploration as the Large Hadron Collider at CERN begins recreating the conditions
3: just after the Big Bang. And... You know, some people enjoy the ambiguity of it and it might be that they're afraid of alienating certain markets or they're afraid of the judgments that people will pass on them.
0: As Ricky Martin announces he's gay, how easy is it for modern pop stars to be open about their sexual orientation? First, our top story. Tony Blair returned to British politics yesterday with a speech at Trimden Labour Club in his former constituency, Sedgefield. The ex-Prime Minister praised the leadership of his former rival, Gordon Brown, and took apart the Conservatives' pitch to voters in the coming election. Britain's challenge today is not
1: a 20th century one, and its politics cannot afford 20th century political attitudes. This country has to go forward with energy, drive, compassion determination and above all understanding closed minds close off the future closed minds would mean the challenge has failed but it would also mean that the opportunity is squandered this country faces big challenges in the future I want this party the Labour Party to be the one able to meet those challenges this country needs strong leadership I want our leadership to be the one that gives it There is still vast potential and promise in our nation. I want our government to be the one that develops it. I want a future fair for all. And I believe a fourth-term Labour government, and only a fourth-term Labour government, can deliver it. Thank you.
0: Guardian commentator Michael White was in Sedgefield to hear the speech. He says Blair dismissed David Cameron's claim to be his true heir.
4: Well I didn't catch him pouring scorn on it uh, in uh, Trimden Labour Club pouring rain and mist up there in County Durham uh, today but uh, you do catch a glimpse of the old uh, Blair magic. He can still make a good speech and make a point better than anyone I can think of operating in British politics and that includes
0: David Cameron because one of Blair's complaints is it's not clear what Cameron's trying to say. He has praised Gordon Brown's leadership uh, in this speech in Sedgefield. Not
4: excessively, but nonetheless he did his duty, I would say.
0: Have they buried the hatchet?
4: Well, no, the the, the thing people don't quite understand about Labour right-wingers like Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair is that, they, you know, they support their team. They're like Arsenal supporters or Newcastle United in Tony Blair's case. You know, they'd come out for him. He wasn't uh, effusive. That would have been, in a sense, dishonest. But he said, uh, you know, they've shown good judgment in the recession. They know where they want to go. Uh, I think he used the phrase uh, consistent and solid. He described Labour's policies. Well, it's not exactly so soap, is it? But he said the Tories were strikingly inconsistent, and part of that's deliberate. He said you can't say cutting the debt is the most important thing in the world, and then a few days uh, ago say, well, actually, let's take five billion off the national insurance contributions. No, I can't say how we're going to pay for it. And he said some of this confusion between what they know the voters want them to say and what they really believe is deliberate. It's a strategy of confusion, he called it. And, you know, this is Blair as a top rate uh, stump operator. He had a small audience there, only 100 or so loyal supporters in the Labour Club. But um, it was Blair all right. And you could see beneath the tan, the old Tony Blair still has the
0: instincts. He does have that knack of crystallising his arguments into very few words. How much of an asset is Tony Blair to Labour?
4: Well, depends who you talk to. Coming down on the train, I talked to an old lefty friend of mine in media on a bad phone line, and he said, I suppose he was a disaster. I suppose, uh, you know, he will cost them votes. And I said, well, no, I'm not sure about that quite. I know that's what you think, but a lot of people don't. And the people coming out of the village, uh, a Labour club, not at all typical, it's an old pit village in uh, County Durham, but they're not daft, you know, um, said he's still got the old magic touch. Tony, one of them said... You know, so clear and he's so passionate about what he believes in. Well, of course, half our listeners on this programme will sneer and, you know, kick the cat at hearing that. But Blair (laughs) does believe in things, and one of the things he believes in was invading Iraq, uh, about which somebody will want me to say. He said, ''Our troops continue to perform heroically and brilliantly in Afghanistan, and just recently in Basra we have seen the huge change in the local economy.'' due in part to the way British troops held the line through the most fraught times and, of course, the Iraq election. Well, you could say, yep, or you could say nope to a sentence like that, but it's very Tony Blair.
0: And today, Mike, uh, Gordon Brown talking about immigration, another um blairish subject, if you like.
4: Well, you know, there were both of them in their time quite in favour of it. They led an enormous number of people into this country, mostly from the European Union. People forget that. We tend to think uh, of immigration in racial terms when uh, often we shouldn't. Uh, uh, Poles and stuff, they lost control of immigration. And uh, as a result of which, even in somewhere like Sedgefield... The old pit villagers. What did the local MP Blair was supporting Phil Wilson say? We're up against the BNP here, you know uh we've got to fight the bnp and i said to somebody oh, there are no black people around here are there much it's very white the northeast as everybody knows he said no that's the whole point uh but it's ex pit villages i've heard this before where the old rhetoric of left wing struggle transfers quite easily to the sort of bnp uh, uh rhetoric of, of struggle and the underdog so there's a potent mix there we saw a bit of it in the european elections and even in sedgefield somebody said you know they got 1400 votes in such and such a village in the parish Uh, But we managed to get our people out. We got 1,700. They don't want these people here. And it was the same village, so I understand. We're Blair talking about his own past when he said, you know, I was a bit wet behind the ears when I first came up here in 1983. I looked a bit like the Milky Bar kid. We went into this really rough pub with John Burton, the man who... Picked him up, realised he had a winner here, made him the candidate, got him elected. Still there, he's still there listening to Blair. A totally unchanged, unspoiled man. I expect Blair offered to put him in the House of Lords, but he's too smart for that. Anyway, he says, <laughs> Burton says, we don't go in that pub. And Blair, Blair says, oh yes, we must go into the pub. And as they go in, the Milky Bar kid and his, uh, I think an ex-minor Burton agent, go into this rough pub. You know, the music stops, it's the old <laughs> Western cliché. And Burton whispers, no, whatever you do, don't order a Perrier ward.
0: Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world. GPs, hospital doctors and nurses are failing to diagnose cancer or not spotting it early enough. And these blunders by NHS professionals are harming the health of hundreds of patients. That's according to a new report.
5: Health correspondent Dennis Campbell has the details. This report details how NHS staff, everyone from GPs to hospital doctors to pathologists uh, to receptionists and medical secretaries, Got the, uh, got the diagnosis of cancer wrong or made blunders in the uh, handling of uh, diagnostic tests undertaken on patients suspected of having cancer with the end result in, the, in all these cases that someone's diagnosis of cancer was delayed. That can sometimes be critical or even terminal. And how widespread is this problem? The research was undertaken by an NHS body called the National Patient Safety Agency. It looked at 1,650 cases of delayed diagnosis of cancer which had been referred to it, complaints in effect referred to it by other NHS staff doctors and nurses who were concerned that someone else hadn't been doing the job right uh, they analysed what, about one third of those in detail and they found that about a third of those ones looked at in detail people had suffered harm of different sorts, moderate or severe harm and a couple of people had actually died as a result of these errors Why are these misdiagnoses happening? Partly because cancer is very, very hard to, can be very, very hard to spot a lot of the symptoms of cancer such as tiredness or bleeding or uh, weight loss are also the symptoms of sometimes dozens of other conditions. So to give GPs the credit, there are over 200 forms of cancer and it can be very hard to spot when someone actually has cancer. But also some of these, as this report lays bare in, in actually painful detail, are the result of what? Uh, the the NHS tells me today are called system errors, but actually our things are basically our human beings getting it wrong. Uh, for example, uh, a, a biopsy taken from a patient being mixed up with that of another patient. Therefore, one patient who is who has got cancer being given the all clear, someone who doesn't have cancer being subjected to uh, in one case uh, a very extensive surgery, which is obviously completely unnecessary. Things like that going wrong. How does the UK compare on this to other countries? The UK sadly has a very poor record in diagnosing cancer. The cancers are, Professor Mike Richards estimates that as many as 10,000 people a year die unnecessarily because we're so poor at diagnosing cancer early. Part of that is down to patients either not recognising symptoms or not acting on them and an unknown number of other cases down to uh, doctor and other health professionals getting it wrong. What can be done about it? There are, happily, there are uh, now major moves underway led by the cancers Island Department of Health involving the Royal College of GPs to uh, improve uh, GPs' awareness of the symptoms of cancer, to encourage them to use things like specialist forms of software IT to basically to to aggregate a patient's symptoms and looking at the number of times, for example, they've presented with the same symptoms to calibrate the risk of cancer and then say, you should be referred on to, to hospital for further tests. So there are things going on, but we are still way, way below the european average and behind many many countries even in eastern europe for this
0: i'm john dennis you're listening to guardian daily still to come particle physics and ricky martin but first Russian investigators say there could be further terrorist attacks after Monday's suicide bombings on the Moscow metro. They say up to 20 potential suicide bombers are at large. The country's in mourning after 39 people were killed when two women blew themselves up on the transport system during Monday rush hour. Luke Harding in Moscow says the Federal Security Service warns Russians to be vigilant.
2: The investigators are saying that they're now hunting a group of possibly um, up to 20 more suicide bombers. Uh, and they're examining possible links between what happened on Monday, the two attacks on on the train stations carried out by two young women from the North Caucasus um, and a a Chechen rebel leader called uh, Saeed Buryatsky. He doesn't sound very Russian, but in fact, Buryatsky was a kind of Russian-born Muslim convert um, who was killed earlier this month in a special operation in Ingushetia. And what law enforcement agencies believe is the case is that uh, these attacks on monday may have been in revenge for his killing in a shootout and more to the point that Buryatsky may have groomed if you like as many of, as sort of 30 potential suicide bombers nine of whom have already blown themselves up but another 20 or so who are still at large it must be terrifying
0: for the people of russia
2: well, it's interesting you say that, John. I mean, I, I took the metro t- uh, th- this morning. I mean, there really is no alternative for most Mus- Muscovites. The city is gridlocked at the best of times, and-, and-, and now cars are simply not moving around the streets. And so it- it's interesting. There's a, kind of, there's a kind of little kind of dance going on. You get on the metro, and you look around, and people look at you. And um, a lot of people were quite brightly dressed, wearing bright clothing this morning, I think to signal that they were just ordinary Muscovites on the way to work. And obviously, people have been laying flowers at the metro stations where the bombings took place. And and there's a very kind of sorrowful mood here. And I I think also a vengeful mood from uh, the Russian government, which is promising a a crackdown on terrorism um, with Vladimir Putin leading the way and saying that he he plans to eliminate uh, the people who did this. But how damaging is this to Putin's authority? In a way, you'd have thought it would be very damaging because it actually says that the Kremlin's strategy in the North Caucasus, is that, that the, these very troubled republics of Ingushetia and Dagestan and Chechnya, has failed. That the Kremlin has been saying, really for quite a long time now, that that, that the insurgency is over, following two brutal wars in the nineties and 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 again between nineteen ninety nine and two thousand and five, and the situation is under control. Now that's clearly not true, but um, despite all that, it seems that kind of people are rallying around the government um, in these rather difficult times they're calling for retributive measures to be meted out um, against Chechen terrorists and and really rather depressingly we're seeing kind of more xenophobia and intolerance here with reports of several Caucasians who've got nothing to do with what happened on Monday being beaten up and uh, actually physically kicked off metro trains.
0: Luke Harding in Moscow. The Large Hadron Collider which attempts to replicate in miniature what happened just after the Big Bang, began working yesterday. 18 months ago, it shut down after suffering an enormous helium leak. But now, at CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research, the hunt for new particles, forces and dimensions can begin in earnest, as our science correspondent Ian Sample explains.
6: So this is the biggest uh, a most important physics experiment for a generation, um, certainly for the generation ahead, because there's really nothing like it. I mean, it, it is the world's most powerful particle collider. It operates in a tunnel that's 100 metres under the French-Swiss border that's 27 kilometres around. Now, you sort of work it out on the notepad that if you sort of reached into the ground and pulled this thing up and held it up on the ground like a hoop, it reaches five miles into the sky. And that's, that's a really big machine. What it does, I mean, it accelerates protons, these subatomic particles inside atoms, to, you know, a whisker of the, within a whisker of the speed of light and then just crashes them into each other. And the idea is that these collisions just create such intense energies that they mimic the conditions in the early universe that were there just a fraction of a second after the big bang. I mean when these guys got the first collisions in the large hadron collider yesterday, um there was an awful lot of cheering and applause, but you could almost feel it, the just the relief I think that it's worked because bear in mind there were two failures yesterday morning on the way to making this machine work. And you know, I was watching it thinking I was there in 2008 in September where everything went fine and then nine days later it blew up essentially. Um, so I'm still keeping my fingers crossed for how things go over the next two or three weeks.
0: What are the benefits of the knowledge that we might get from this?
6: I mean the wonderful thing in a way is, is that that is impossible to answer with any kind of certainty. I mean, there are some technical things you can look at. I mean, we know several things that they will be looking long and hard for that they expect to find, which are predicted in existing theories. So we have the the infamous Higgs particle, the God <laughs> particle, which... Uh, oh, please,
0: Ian, tell us what that is.
6: <laughs> well, the idea of that is that <laughs> the Higgs particle is... Um, well, would be the Higgs boson verific- yeah. would be verification of a theory um, which explains how elementary particles get their masses. Now, this is basically before the universe was a pico second old, um, which is like a trillionth of a second old. Um, all of the particles, um, the fundamental particles like quarks and electrons that build up the atoms, they're all massless, so they're all flying around at the speed of light. And you can imagine that if that's what's going on, you don't get planets and stars, you don't get life, you don't really have the structure of the universe that we have today. The idea behind this is that the Higgs field uh, switches on and gives these particles mass, it slows them down, and then they start coalescing and forming the atoms and chemistry that we know of. And from there on, you get the sort of galaxy formation and things that we see around us. Um, It's only a theory, but it's the best one they've got, and it looks pretty tight. It looks pretty much like that's the case. But the proof will be in finding that particle, and without that particle, you can't say it's true. And they've been looking for it for a hell of a long time without finding it. But they might not find it, might they? They might not find it. I mean, what they are almost certain of is that the energy range that the LHC will look at will find what does do that job whether it's the Higgs particle or not now there might be something else out there that does the job of uh, giving these particles mass Uh, we know something does it or we wouldn't be here Um, but the if you just the way the maths works out it has to be something within this certain range of energy because otherwise things just don't add up Um, you know I mean you could say that if they find nothing. It means the universe is far weirder than anyone's imagined, which in one sense is really interesting. But I think it could be pretty disastrous for the field because at the end of the day, when the LHC closes in 20 years time, you have to go to governments and say we want another one. And (laughs) if you you spent, you know, six billion getting nowhere, you know, over the past 20 years, I don't think they're going to put their hands in their pockets very easily.
0: And how, I mean, you know, 20 years time it closes, but I mean, how soon before we establish uh, whether or not they are able to find the Higgs boson?
6: How soon you find things is a really key point. And I think a lot of people believe that experiments are kind of things where you get them running and, and your results just appear in front of your eyes there and then. It's, it's really not like that in particle physics in particular. Uh, certainly not with these big colliders. You have to collide particles day after day, week and month and year after year and then look at these huge data sets, these absolutely staggeringly enormous data sets. And you basically look for anomalies. You look for things that that stand out that don't agree with the kind of stuff you already know about and that points you to something new but it could be um it could be years could certainly be months before we see anything new
0: ian sample and from large hadron collider to Living la vida loca Martin, the Latino pop star who's sold 60 million albums worldwide, has announced he's gay. The Puerto Rican singer has previously dodged questions about his sexual orientation, but he's ended years of speculation with a post on his website. He says the birth of his two sons to a surrogate mother, and the fact he's currently writing his memoirs, has led him to come out. As Guardian music writer Rosie Swash explains he had little to lose.
3: I would imagine that it is safer for him to come out now than it would be at any time previously in his career. It doesn't matter, I think, financially to him if if he never sells another record. But often when pop stars come out suddenly for no apparent reason, it's because there's a story to be told, sold rather, and so someone will go to them. You know, in the case of Stephen Gately, the tabloids went to him and said, this story's about to be exposed, would you rather just come out yourself than wait for someone else to expose it but we don't know that it could just be that he's decided to tell everyone what a lot of people already knew about him
0: well that's it i mean people (laughs) are saying it's the worst kept secret in show business but the parallel with Stephen gately is quite interesting because ricky martin started his career in a boy band didn't he
3: yeah, and also um, they're both from tra- countries that are traditionally religiously very intolerant of homosexuality. Obviously, being in a boy band, we now associate it a lot more with campness. Um, take that were uh, originally marketed at the at the gay market until they noticed that teenage girls were falling for them, and then and they were image was sort of steered in another direction but for the longest time you know you want these pop stars to be attractive to young women and will young women fantasize about men if they really think there's no chance they'll get them and actually they probably will
0: well, that's it. I mean, you said that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to him whether he sells another record. He's a very rich man. But will will this affect his popularity?
3: I mean, it's really difficult to say because he hasn't had an album out for so long, which is another reason why it's quite strange that it's come out now. Um, and most of what he's done recently with his life is philanthropy. So, you know, if he were to go back, what will happen in Puerto Rico? What will happen in those Latin American markets where, where it's actually, you know, some of these countries, is, there's no... Um, Legislation in place to sanction discrimination against people on grounds of their sexuality. There's nothing to, uh, I think some of the places they ban sodomy, those kind of things. They're very archaic compared to to Europe in terms of its legislation. So what will happen then to the sort of homegrown fans? I think it's too early to tell in terms of news how it's being received, but what we're mostly seeing is Western media giving him a pat on the back.
0: uh, Someone like Ricky Martin um, being public about his sexuality make it easier for other people to come out.
3: It's, that's always what's said when um, when a, a young man in particular, uh, come, you know, young pop star comes out. And I think the sad thing is, it's, it's kind of acceptable to be gay if your music is with it somehow within that boundary. So the 80s, the pops were completely dominated by gay pop stars um some of whom were quite obviously homosexual like freddie mercury but who never you know lots of people actually didn't know that because it still was no and he didn't come out and say something did come he? out and say something but so, you know frankie goes to <laughs> Hollywood um, boy George wham what? all that just was... a minute frankie goes to Hollywood <laughs> boy George <laughs> and but if you but you know you look at what they're what they're writing about and you look at the lifestyles and it, and they are they are gay they're a huge part of their identity is gay when we had the X Factor last year and there was a little bit of controversy about the contestant Daniel and his sexuality. Now, he's someone who has decided that it's not going to be a big part of his identity as a pop star or otherwise. And it would be nice if someone could say, you know what, I'm in a band, I'm going to make music. I happen to be gay, but it's got nothing to do with the music that I'm making. Has that never happened? Well, it has to a degree. I mean, I think Will Young has actually been reasonably successful at doing that. If we're going to talk about pop strictly he's actually been pretty good at, at being successful being out and not really talking about it that much but we still see you know there's always discussion about people such as michael stipe of rem he's never ever uh said one way or the other whether he actually is gay or not and there's always been a lot of talk about that and that might just be that you know some people enjoy the ambiguity of it and it might be that they're afraid of alienating certain markets or they're afraid of the judgments that people will pass on them
0: Rosie Swash. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Ben Green. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.